Hi everyone, Carl Muller here. Today, we'd like to do something different and introduce you to a unique podcast called Capital Ministries. This show airs the Bible studies that are taught weekly in Washington, D.C., in both our House and Senate chambers. That means you can hear the same faith-based messages our politicians are receiving. If you like the preview you're about to hear, we encourage you to check out the links in today's show notes and follow their show. A brand new episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg will be available next Monday. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the Capital Ministries podcast. At Capital Ministries, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the political arena throughout the world, and we do this through weekly, in-depth discipleship Bible studies. I'm Frank Sontag, and I look forward to sharing these Bible studies written by my friend Ralph Drawlinger. As president and founder of Capital Ministries, Ralph is teaching the same study to three different groups in D.C. this week. He holds a House Members Bible Study, a Senate Members Bible Study, and a Zoom Study with former White House Cabinet members. This is the first episode of our four-part series titled, How We Got the Bible. May the Holy Spirit bless your understanding of this critically important subject, how God gave us His book. He didn't just drop it out of the sky. Before we get started, let us hear a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. This Capital Ministries Bible study from president and founder Ralph Drawlinger is the first in a four-part series titled, How We Got the Bible. May the Holy Spirit bless your understanding of this critically important subject, how God gave us his book. He didn't just drop it out of the sky. Our introduction. This study was written by and is used with permission from the late Dr. Robert L. Thomas, one of my favorite seminary professors and an expert in this field. Every believer needs to have a handle on this subject. Accordingly, I reissue it each year. It is good to review this every year since we believe that God's Word, His Word, is the ultimate source of truth and the final arbiter of all of faith and practice. That being the case, it makes sense that we have a good handle on this important subject. The term canon. The term canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which originally meant a reed. This Greek word then came to mean rod or bar. Since a rod or bar was used for measuring, the word came to mean standard. 
In grammar, it meant a rule of procedure. In chronology, it meant a table of historical dates. In literature, it meant a list of works correctly attributed to a given author. Canon is used four times in the New Testament, each having a metaphorical meaning. In 2 Corinthians 10.13, 15, and 16, the word depicts a geographical limit or boundary. In Galatians 6.16, it speaks of a moral standard. In other words, it is the rule by which a believer is to live. Moreover, canone depicts a definitely bounded or fixed space within which one's influence and activity is confined. The predominant thought is that of measure, limit, or boundary. When used in conjunction with the Bible, the English word canon carries two possible connotations. Canon may speak of principles, rules, standards, or norms by which a book is measured before being accepted as part of Scripture. Canon may speak of an authoritative list of books accepted as Holy Scripture, that is, the collection of books which measures up to the body of principles referred to in the previous connotation. Referring to an authoritative list of books, this use of the word is not found before the middle of the 4th century. In the decrees of the Council of Nicaea, published shortly after A.D. 350, Athanasius referred to the shepherd of Hermas as not being of the canon. The 39th festal letter of Athanasius, also called his Easter letter in A.D. 367, describes scripture by a Greek term meaning canonized. This is contrasted with the secret writings of the heretics. Athanasius then listed the 27 books of the New Testament and applied the term canone to them. At about the same time, the Council of Laodicea, A.D. 360, used the terminology uncanonical and canonical in setting forth its findings. Today, there are two main ways to view the canon of Scripture, an authoritative collection of writings or a collection of authoritative writings. The view that the canon is an authoritative collection of writings is the traditional view of Roman Catholicism. Note that the authority of the canon is vested in the collection. In other words, the collecting agency or the church has the authority rather than the writings themselves. There is also the view that the canon is a collection of authoritative writings. Thus, the authority is vested in the writings themselves, and the church merely recognizes the authority that is latent in them. In this case, the authority rests upon the fact of inspiration rather than resting upon an agency. This is the proper view of the canon, as will become evident in the discussion which follows. The Rise of the Canon The New Testament consists of 27 books, which are ascribed to eight or nine authors. Included are four Gospels, one History, 21 Epistles, and one Apocalypse. The period of composition covers over two generations, from approximately A.D. 45 to A.D. 95. Apart from the Old Testament, Christianity had no authoritative writings for the first 15 years of its existence. Proclamation during this period was solely by word of mouth based on the Old Testament and the tradition of eyewitness reports, which were primarily oral. 
doctrinal and practical issues among early Christians created the need for epistles first, beginning with James in the late 40s. These were written by early apostles and prophets on the basis of direct revelations given them by God. Epistles continued to appear until the last three. The epistles of John were dispatched in the early 90s. About ten years after the earliest epistle was written, eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly life and resurrection became more scarce, and Christianity spread to the extent that there were not enough to tell the story of his life orally. Thus, the Gospels began to appear. Matthew came first, being written in the late 50s. Luke followed in about A.D. 60. Mark was written in the late 60s. The Gospel of John appeared sometime during the late 80s. The Church needed to have an authoritative account of the first 30 years of its history and the activity of the Holy Spirit during this time. To meet this need, Acts was written in A.D. 62 or 63. To complete the package, a prophecy of God's plan for the future had to be furnished. This came in the form of the Apocalypse in A.D. 95. Today, no original manuscript from any of the 27 books remains. Such documents are referred to as autographs or autographa. From the divine standpoint, the reason for their non-existence is probably to remove the human tendency to worship them. From the human side, these documents were probably destroyed through persecution and the wear caused by repeated use of the fragile materials. The New Testament scholar is not significantly hampered without the autographa due to the eight science and textual criticism. The abundance of early manuscripts from the New Testament places scholars in a better position to know what was originally written than for any other ancient writing. Though we lack the autographs, we can surmise with a good bit of confidence what they must have looked like. A large number of Egyptian documents dating from the New Testament period have been discovered. These furnish a good idea of what form the New Testament autographs must have taken. Some of the Old Testament books by this time had been written on vellum or parchment, which is a writing material made by processing animal skins, but this undoubtedly was too expensive. In 2 John 12, paper, chart tau, refers to a writing sheet made of papyrus strips. In the same verse, ink, melanos, is a noun derived from melas, the Greek adjective meaning black. This became the name given to the ink, which was used by writers in that day. It was produced by mixing soot with gum and diluting it with water. This ink was long-lasting, and because it did not immediately sink into the fiber of the papyrus sheet, it could be washed off or scraped away while still fresh. This made the correction of the copying or writing errors convenient. The eraser process is alluded to in Colossians 2.14 and Revelations 3.5 by the verb cancel, exalifo. In 3 John 13, a further detail of the physical format of the autographs is reflected. Kalamau refers to the pen, which was used in writing. It was a thick reed which had been sharpened to a suitable point at one end, which was then softened in the scribe's mouth. 
The unused sheets of papyrus material was called chartes. After being used, it was called bublos or biblos. A short writing was called to biblion. A collection of short writings was called ta biblia, the neuter plural of the same noun. From this evolved the feminine singular noun he biblia. In Old Latin, this became biblia, from which we have received our English word Bible. The autographs were circulated in a scroll form. The codex or book format did not come into use until the 2nd century A.D. To manufacture a scroll, sheets of papyrus were pasted together end-to-end and rolled up. The roll was held by being tied with a thread or string. Sealing with wax was utilized only for official documents. Normally, the scroll had writing only on one side, with the outside of the roll being used to note the address of the addressee. Some New Testament books were written by the authors themselves, but some were dictated to secretaries or amanuenses, singular amanuensis. For example, Tertius was the amanuensis whom Paul used for Romans in Romans 16.22. On the other hand, Paul wrote Galatians himself in Galatians 6.11. The only postal service available in that day was for official government use. Therefore, the New Testament books had to be delivered by a messenger who was in full sympathy with the purpose of the letter. Cross-reference 2 Corinthians 2.13, Ephesians 6.21, Philippians 2.27, Philemon 1.12. The words of the autographs were written without extra space between. Thus, it is difficult for the modern reader to tell where one word ends and another begins. Occasionally, a writer might leave a slight space to indicate a break in thought, but the general rule was not to do this. Conservation of space was necessary due to the expense of writing materials. Simply stated, they were not nearly as available as they are today. In addition, punctuation was hardly used. Sometimes a horizontal line above the words would indicate an abbreviation. A horizontal line below would indicate a new paragraph, yet... Such occurrences were rare. The Early Circulation of the Canon The final state of the canon did not depend on the church's reception of it. In reality, the canon was complete when the last book, i.e. the Apocalypse, was completed. However, the church did not recognize this authority immediately. Recognition took time as the books continued to circulate. After an autograph's arrival and reception by the initial recipient or recipients, it probably remained there for a while. It was read by the addressee or the addressees repeatedly, but went no farther. Exceptions to this general rule include those books which were circular letters. Built into such encyclical letters was a mechanism which necessitated immediate circulation to a number of churches, Revelation, Galatians, and 2 Corinthians were of this type. Ephesians also was probably a circular letter to all the churches in the Roman province of Asia. Cross-reference Ephesians 1 verse 1, Colossians chapter 4 verse 16. After possessing a New Testament letter or book, word would spread of its location. Requests would come for copies, which could be utilized in other localities. 
Such requests were honored, and over a period of time, copies became plentiful and widespread. Gradually, these copies were made into sets of books. Evidence for such collections begins at a very early time, a time even before a number of the 27 books were composed. As stated earlier, the autographs were written on papyrus sheets, which were joined together into a roll. From an early date, however, the New Testament writings began to be circulated into the form of papyrus codices, singular codex. In a codex, sheets were laid one on each other, very much along the lines of a modern book. The sheets were then folded down the middle and fastened together either by sewing or gluing. Some of the codices became quite large. One of the largest is page 45, one of the Chester Beatty series, which originally contained 59 sheets or 118 leaves. Advantages of the codex format included the possibility of writing on both sides of the sheet, thereby conserving space. Another advantage was that of quick reference when looking for a given passage. A third type of format used in circulation of the New Testament writings was the parchment codex. The use of parchment dates back to the reign of Humenes II at Pergamum, 197 through 158 BC. Eumenes's ambition for his city was to build a library collection that would rival the one in Alexandria. To accomplish this, he needed to import a large amount of papyrus from Egypt. When Ptolemy Epiphanes of Egypt discovered his plans, he immediately shut off the export of papyrus to Pergamum. Eumenes therefore had to resort to the use of animal skins, which had been specially processed to make them suitable for writing. The new material became known as pergamina, which means parchment. Another name for such material, which is practically synonymous, is vellum. The main disadvantage of parchment compared to papyrus was the expense to produce it. Its advantages, however, began to assert themselves and to outweigh the disadvantages in the circulation of the New Testament writings during the 4th century A.D. These included the possible manufacture of it in any part of the world, its flexibility permitting a more presentable codex format, its durability, and its resistance to moisture content in the air. Papyrus could not be preserved outside the dry climate of Egypt. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are examples of the parchment codex form. The science of paleography, which includes an analysis of handwriting, is an important means, perhaps the most important means of dating ancient documents. There are three major styles of handwriting found in New Testament manuscripts. The Uncial Style Uncial letters resembled capital letters in ancient times. Capital letters were chiseled in stone and have been found in inscriptions. Uncial letters were square and upright but not quite as square and upright as the capitals. This type of handwriting is found in the earliest parchment codices of the New Testament. It also is the dominant style in the earliest papyrus manuscripts. The early centuries of the Christian era, perhaps the first four or five, give us manuscripts which were written in this manner, particularly in the literary or formal type of writings. An example of uncial handwriting resembles the uppercase printed Greek letters of modern times. The Cursive Style 
Gradually, the cursive handwriting developed from the Unschul style. Now, however, the letters were connected together in a sort of running handwriting. This permitted greater speed in copying. There also began to be some letters which projected above and or below the rest of the letters. The style became characteristic particularly in non-literary or more informal types of writings. Generally speaking, the cursive style belongs to the middle centuries of the first millennium A.D. until around the ninth century. The minuscule style. The minuscule handwriting borrowed characteristics from both the uncial and the cursive. It had the beauty of the uncial and the flowing quality of the cursive. The letters are smaller and some letters consistently extended above or below the line of the rest of the letters. This type permitted speed in copying and also provided for a conservation of space. It came into use in private documents during the 9th century and from the 10th century on, it was popular for literary purposes only. Our modern printed Greek New Testaments resemble this style more than any other. Next week, we will examine the influences that led to the canonical collection. Friends, I encourage you to find more studies like this one on the Capital Ministries website, which is capmin.org. There you can also learn about in-depth weekly discipleship Bible studies taking place in capitals throughout our nation and around the world. You may be called to lead such studies with public servants in your community. Thanks to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. Here at lifeaudio.com, you will also find more faith-centered podcasts. This concludes our Bible study for this week. May God bless you deeply. Thank you for all you do on the Hill and in our great country. This is Frank Sontag. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.